0: I'd like to start off with a true story. I want to tell you the story of one of the most wealthy, learned, and influential men in the entire world. He was developed and trained in a thoroughly anti-biblical worldview. And I want to be clear with you, he bought into this anti-biblical worldview hook, line, and sinker. He received the greatest training from the greatest Learning institution of his day. He was well versed and trained in religion and literature and philosophy and science, math, architecture, astronomy, and leadership. He was also set to inherit uh, a significant portion of his father's business. And then something course altering happened. As a result of a series of events, he actually left the family business, left the country, and started all over completely from scratch. In fact, um, this experience, this season of life, caused him to rethink his entire worldview, uh, everything he thought he believed about God, about life, about the afterlife, and even about creation. In fact, um, around the age of 80 years old, he had a, we would call a miracle God encounter that would absolutely undo him. Now, here's the question he had to face. If God could do This, miracles, is there anything that God cannot do? Now this man ultimately gave his entire life over to God and his entire worldview was radically and totally transformed and changed. Pop quiz, who am I talking about? The first service, by the way, epically failed. Genius, Yes, Jeff Peterson. A couple people said it after he said it. You stole the answer, Dave Torres. It's not fair. (laughs) That is cheating. Jeff is the victor. He is the champion. We're talking about Moses. And you may not know this, but Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses was birthed in a pagan worldview. I want you to hear me. Moses did not believe the creation story from the book of Genesis. In fact, he probably thought it was a fairy tale, a fabrication of a people of old. I mean, Moses did not buy into this. In fact, Moses um, had a series of experiences with God that left him forsaking his Egyptian worldview and life and riches and status. And throughout the course of his life, God drew Moses to himself. Uh, Now, how many of you right now are glad you are not the one teaching on the first five or six days of creation this morning, right? I actually had a couple people come up to me and they're like, I'm glad you're doing this because for all the people who don't agree with you, like I don't want to get their flack. And uh, Here's what I know. that I, I want to talk to you about what I know about this room. Um, there are those of you in this room, many of you, who have had an encounter with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing that I say to you today is going to blow your mind it's not gonna unravel you. It's not gonna make your whole world fall apart. I'm gonna tell you why. Because you believe in a God who can do anything. And in fact, when you open up the scriptures, there's never a moment where you're gonna say, nah, God couldn't do that. That's just a little bit too big for him. Nothing that I say is going to blow your mind. Uh, My goal today is to be helpful, encouraging, to train you, to help you figure out what is truth from the word of God, maybe to push you along this journey a little bit further. But then here's what I also know. There are a number of you in this room, as there is every single service, who have never encountered God through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's, here's what I know. Uh, there are every Sunday, multiple people who do not start with this core assumption and belief. There is a God who loves me and can do anything and is bound by no law of the universe. And there are multiple people in here every Sunday who believe that I wanna, I wanna put all my cards on the table on the front end. I do not believe for a moment that I'm going to change your mind. In fact, uh, I don't believe that at the end of this, any of you are gonna change your mind because I give you some kind of proof or evidence of the way the world was made. In fact, here's, here's what I want to do. Uh, I wanna ask you to empathize with a Christian for a moment. Rather than debate and rather than figure out why this preacher is so this or that, try putting yourself in the shoes of a believer in Jesus Christ and begin the process of empathizing with why they might believe what they believe. That would be my, my challenge for you. But here's the deal. You and I both know that if you do not start with the fundamental assumption that there is a God who can do anything, there is nothing that we preach on in this pulpit that is going to make any sense to you. You know that, I know that, and I already know that I'm not going to convince you. So, my primary audience today, it's not you. My ask for you is to empathize. Now, some of you are going to conclude Michael is anti science. Can we just be clear for a moment? I am not anti science. I love science. I had two scientists come up to me after the uh, first service and say, we really, really appreciated how you handled that." I love scientists. I love science. My issue is rarely ever with scientific data. My issue is with how people who don't love God take these data points and tell stories with them. My issue is rarely with the data points. My issue is with the false narratives that are being forced upon you and then you're told if you don't believe in the narratives that you reject the data points or the science. That, that is something I have a major issue with. And I want you to know on the front end, I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-scientific community. Um, here, here's my challenge this morning with each of you. Um, particularly, let's talk about Christians. Because, uh, oh, we heard the pastor's going to teach on the days of creation. What does he believe? Do we agree with Michael? If he doesn't say this, I'm going to be upset. Uh, many of you are coming in right now, and you're like in the judgment seat, which is fine. I deal with it all the time. Um, you're judging me, and you're judging me. It's fine. It's just it's what it is. But I, w- I want to reframe your question, Okay. I want to reframe your question from this. What do I believe? And I could be me or I could be you. doesn't matter. From what do I believe to the following? What did Moses and Jesus believe? I want to tell you why I want to reframe it like this. Uh, I've struggled with a question that goes something like this. If we can know what Jesus believed about creation, can we be followers of Jesus and disagree with him? If we know what Jesus believed about creation, can I really say, I'm a Jesus follower, but I don't agree with you on this, Jesus. So here's how I imagine for a lot of modern Christians, it would go like this. They go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, how was the world created? And Jesus says, ah, you should have been there. I spoke, and galaxies unfolded, it was unbelievable. The angels sang, Jesus, 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 I don't think you know that much about science. Huh? (laughs) I thought up science, woo, the laws of the universe unfolded before me, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. (laughs) I really don't think you know what you're talking about. (laughs) But that's the way I fear that some of us would legitimately have a conversation with Jesus. I mean, is not Jesus fully man and yet fully God? Uh, Right? And I have a hunch, I have a hunch, in fact, I have almost certainty that if I sat down with Moses and Jesus constantly reaffirms Moses' view of creation as true and right about the days, about Adam and Eve, and that it's not just metaphor, like, you cannot, if you just take out all external evidence and you just take the scriptures as a closed book, here's what you're going to conclude, You're going to conclude that Moses has a firm opinion on creation and Jesus agrees with him and it has no connection to any modern scientific theories. Now, you may not agree with Moses and Jesus. That's up to you. But one of my goals today is to reframe this from prove to me that uh, a young earth view is is scientifically plausible. I want to get rid of all the. I'm not equipped to give you everything you need to answer everyone's objectives. Here's what I want to do. I wanna address this theologically and then you gotta figure out what to do with the theological implications of what I'm saying. I wanna show you with clarity, Moses was not confused, but was incredibly clear headed and that Jesus affirms Moses. And this is a constant reality that we, as Christians, have to deal with. All right, so you should also be asking, Michael, do I need to agree with you? Yes, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Look, it, I'll I'll give you a couple issues, right? Um, Predestination, you guys love that issue? Took me three years of study to come to grips with it. I listened to hundreds of sermons on it. I read tons of articles. Uh, And here's what I know. Uh, On really thick issues that are culturally confusing, all these ideas get into our brain, and sometimes it takes a while to unravel and dismantle all that. I'm not demanding you to be where I'm at. I'm not even telling you that I've arrived perfectly at every single thought and idea and that I am God's perfect spokesman to you right now and right here. Okay? That's, that's not my point in this. My point in this is I hope that I can help you uh, maybe untangle some of the questions, get a little bit more clarity, and move more and more closer to a biblical worldview. You're going to go to your community groups this week, and some of you can going to be like, Michael's so dumb. Why did he say this? I mean, disagree with me all you want. I, they'll never tell me anyway. So disagree, fight it out, duke it out. Just, here's the deal. Can you guys love each other and be kind in the process? What what trumps all this discussion for me is your faith in Jesus Christ and your belief that God's word is absolutely authoritative and that should God had wanted to, he can create the world in any way he deems pleasurable to himself right? You got that stuff down? I mean, work it out, fight it out, duke it out, disagree. You want to sit down with me, submit Q&A questions. We're going to be going to town over the next month, getting all of your feedback from this and putting them together and trying to answer questions in a helpful way and bringing in special guests. I love your questions. I want to answer your questions. I don't want to hide from them. Um, and so here's the deal. I hope that this is going to push you um, to a much better place and help you be a little bit more wise. And I want to tell you a true story. My wife does not know this, I don't think. Um, She's sitting over there. Okay, so 1999, uh, a buddy and I, around one or two in the morning, we were driving around at night. Why? Because we could. The world was safer back then. So um, we would drive around neighborhoods that had big, huge homes. So um, we were going down this cul-de-sac, it was a long road, we get to the very end and my high beams, as they turn, flash on the house at the end of the cul-de-sac. And as they flash, I look at my friend and I say, did you see that? He says, yeah. I said, the house is boarded up. Yeah. We're going in. Yeah. Totally logical to me in the the moment. Um. So we pull up, it's a house, my best guess would be uh, six to 8,000 square feet, pool in the backyard, tennis courts, multiple car garage, a separate six car garage plus a stable for the horses, multiple acres, beautiful property, completely boarded up. Um, Back in the day before your cell phones functioned as a flashlight, we had these things that you clicked on and off called a flashlight. And um, so we go into the glove compartment box, we pull out the flashlights, everything's boarded up, but in the back of the house is an entrance. And I look at him and I'm like, are you scared a little bit? Let's do it. So we open up this little board and we go in the house. In fact, I'm sorry, my buddy from high school is here. John, did you ever go in the house with me? You did, okay. (laughs) Deeply apologize twice for anything that I did to you. (laughs) <laughs> in that house, sometimes we'd bring friends in, and uh, we went to this house multiple times, by the way. And we turn the lights off, and then we would just we wouldn't move, and it was pitch black because the whole thing was completely boarded up. And you go in at night, totally scary. Well, we go into the kitchen, and uh, the kitchen was it was a weird experience because there's dishes in the sink. You open up the pantry, and there's still food in there. And uh, you you walk around, and it's like wow, like what happened here? You go down into the hallway. And when you get out of the kitchen you go into the hallway, there's this kind of big wall. And the word red rum in, in red paint is painted on there. I had no point of reference for it. It took me a couple times to realize it was murder backwards. And you look at it in a mirror, apparently from some movie. I don't know. We didn't know better. So we carried on. And you go into the basement. And uh, there are toys. And there was this big G.I. Joe um, dome. Remember the G.I. Joe dome? It was like the coolest thing ever. It was down there. And anyways, um, you go upstairs and you go into the bathrooms and there's half-use soap and half-use shampoo and whatever. Like, clearly, like, this, this is someone's, someone's home. And uh, you go into the bedrooms and you open up the drawers. or socks. I mean, everything, right? This is, like, this is, this is real. And my, my best guess, I'm just, I'm guessing here, two to four years, maybe since somebody's lived in this house and clearly a number of people had broken before. We did. I'm not advocating this. Stop judging me. Come on. I'm just telling you, this is before I really went into ministry, so all things are are permissible. The blood of Christ has covered this. <laughs> the guilty guy is back there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh so now, 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 true story, I want, now I want you to just play a game with me. We're going to play detective for a moment, so we got our scenario. It's a true scenario. That, thing, that place really exists. Now, here's what I want you to do, okay? We're going to have two detectives, and I'll be the chief for fun. Um, the first detective needs a name, okay? Somebody throw out a name uh, of a... Not Clouseau. I can't remember that, John. He did that in the first service. And I can't, I'm like, what? Apparently he's a real person or a fictional character. I have no idea. Whatever. Give me a real name. Tracy. Good, good. We'll leave out the first Tracy. Good. All right. So Dick Tracy is, is told by the chief. Shh. Shh. He's, he's, he's told by the, he's an actual character. Anyways, whatever. If I said something inappropriate, I don't know what it is. So, so he, um, he. I, I tell him, I tell, I tell Tracy, the uh, this, this, this. Here's your goal. Your job is to answer this question: What happened to this house? And then I say to him, Here is one fact that you need to know: No one has ever lived. In this house. Dick Tracy, you go figure it out. Uh, a second detective comes up. Chief finds him. What's the second detective's name? Columbo. Columbo. I love that one. Thank you. Columbo. Where were you guys first service? Come on. <laughs> Columbo. It was Greta and Clouseau. <laughs> okay. In the first service. <laughs> Columbo. Columbo comes up to the chief. The chief looks at him and says, Columbo, you have one objective. Figure out what happened at this house. Okay, chief. Anything else I need to know? Columbo, go figure it out. Uh, Columbo and Dick Tracy, they leave, they come back, they bring their reports. Dick Tracy comes up to the chief and says, I have my conclusions for you. And he says, it is clear to me that nobody has ever lived in this house. And it is also clear to me that this house was built by somebody who intended to sell it. And what it appears is that after a long period of time, nobody um, decided to purchase the house. So the seller decided to make it appear as if somebody had been living in the house for some time to give the potential buyers, the prospective buyers, this idea of what it might be like if you lived in this house. Now what's Columbo thinking in this moment? What? Hold on how do you How do you even know that nobody lived in this house, number one? But number two, did you not see the dishes? Did you not see the open deodorant? Did you not see the half used soap? Oh, by the way, did you find their financial records in the stable? Because I actually found financial records in the stable. True story, by the way. Michael Fuelling found financial records (laughs) indicating who these people were, okay? And, of course, uh, Dick Tracy says, nope, not possible. Nobody has ever lived here. Okay. Um, I beg to differ because every single bit of the evidence points to one conclusion. There is a family that lived here and they had two to three kids all under the age of 10 to 12 years old and the father owned multiple Ford dealerships in the Metro Detroit area and we don't know how they disappeared. We don't know if they're dead. We don't know what happened to them. But it's really clear. Nope, nobody lived there. That's impossible. Now, I want you to catch this, okay? Here's the point I want you to take away from this. Your fundamental assumptions predetermine your conclusions. Do you see that? If your assumption, your presupposition right in the beginning is that no one lived in this family, you will never, ever get to the right conclusion about what happened to this home, ever. It's impossible. And so many people take all of these scientific pieces of data and they start with an assumption that necessarily leads them to the wrong conclusion. And the assumption is this. Matter is all there is, it is the uncaused cause, it is eternal, there is no God. And when you start with that assumption, it does not matter what evidence comes before you, you will not come to the right conclusion because your assumptions predetermine your conclusions. And Christians, we're looking around at the world and we are saying, how could you look at all of this and not come to the conclusion that there is a sovereign, powerful creator who designed every aspect of this world. And that's how differently Christians and non-theists are looking at this world. Now, you're probably wondering right now, Michael, what actually happened to the family? We have no idea. I, literally, I know that's the most non-satisfying answer you could ever get. We didn't really have internet access like we do now back then. We couldn't look it up. And I wasn't going to call the police and say, I broke into this home. I was rummaging through their financial records. And I just want to know, like, what happened, right? Um, so we actually never figured it out. And I think the mystery of it kind of just, like, won us over. We're like, it's kind of good to just tell our own version of the story. So we'd bring people into the home. We'd say, oh, a family of 12 was murdered here. And we would <laughs> scare people. all It was a blast. And we had a good time with it. But uh, when Christians look at the conclusions of people who don't assume there is a God who can do anything, and we just think to ourselves, what are you talking about? Scientifically, logically, philosophically, I mean, scientifically, here's what we know. Order never comes out of chaos without an intervention of a conscious being. anywhere. it's a law of the universe. Logically, here's what we know. It's impossible that matter is eternal and, unca- like, it's not even plausible. Here's what we know philosophically. The uncaused cause has to be conscious. It cannot be non-conscious. It has to. We know these things. So the Christian steps back just from common sense and from science itself and says, I'm sorry, but your foundations, your assumptions are flawed and they're leading you to flawed conclusions. And of course, when the vast majority of the scientific community starts with an assumption that you and I don't start with, should we not expect that they will tell a different story with the data points they have? And the answer, of course, is yes. Absolutely yes. Now, one of the things I got to, I got to just make sure you're Am I anti-science? No? Okay, we're good on that. All right, we're on the same page. So let me give you some, let us set up some context. Christians have come up with multiple views in, in, with the motivation and the attempt to reconcile science and scripture. And I want to say on the front end, um, I, I love the fact that Christians are trying to come up with ideas and theories that reconcile these two worlds together. I love it, right? Um, I love that they're like, you know, I want the Bible to be true and I, don't, and I want science to be true also. And by the way, the Bible should never in its context ever contradict science. I mean, God is the God of science, amen, right? And again, my issue is not with the majority of the data points, unless it's carbon 14 dating, which is a whole other confusing issue, but those data points I don't like. But there's some theories. So here's what I want to, I want to articulate for you the five major theories. And then I want to share with you what I believe would be the Achilles heel of each of these theories, including the Achilles heel of my own personal theory. And uh, the goal in this, it's not to convince you. Nothing I say is going to make you go, oh, I'm I'm forsaking my entire position on this, and I'm going to go in a different direction. Um, But here's what I want this to do. I want this to help you, and I want you to understand some of the ideas that are out there and why some of them especially fall very short. All right, number one, the gap theory. The gap theory is actually very simple. Um, The gap theory, what it does is it puts a... Very, very long gap between Genesis chapter one, verse one and Genesis chapter one verse two. So here's what the gap theory would do. The gap theory would say, millions and millions or billions of years ago, God made the entire world. Um, and then, about six to 12,000 years ago, Genesis chapter one verse two happens. Well, what happened between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? Um, well, a big thing happened. Angels were created, the angels rebelled, and they made a devastation of humanity. They totally ruined the earth. And in this process, animals died, which is where we find all of these fossils and gas and all the oil, whatever, you know, all that stuff. And so in this process, that's when all of this happened. And then God said, you know what? We're done. And he starts back up in Genesis 1 chapter 2, and he says, I'm going to recreate the entire world, because the angelic realm had left the world formless and void. Now, by Formless and void uh, and without shape, they did not take that literally necessarily. The, the gap theory would say, no, they left it a barren wasteland. There's was still a functional, spherical ish um, thing we call earth, uh, but the angels destroyed it, so God had to come in and recreate it. And one of their desires is to uphold uh, an old earth theory of the world, which I find, I appreciate their desire, and make the scriptures clear. And at the same time, they're trying to reconcile, okay, where in the creation account did the angels? Fall. All right, that's some of the goals, and that's what they're trying to do. It has one major Achilles heel. It's got a thousand issues, but the one major Achilles heel is that it introduces death far before the scriptures introduced death into the world. Um, animal and human death is not said to come until after the fall of Adam and Eve, which happens um, in Genesis chapter three. Um, and yet they're attributing death going back way, way before that. It contradicts the Old Testament and the New Testament explicitly. Like I understand that it helps you make sense of maybe where angels were created and all that kind of stuff. It helps make sense of, a, of, a, a, of an old earth but it does not vibe with scripture itself, which is ultimately its Achilles heel. The second theory is called the day-age theory. Um, Very common theory now, and the day-age theory basically says this. When Genesis one uses the word day, in the Hebrew it is yom, um, it does not necessarily mean a 24-hour period. And here are some of the facts that they would use, and what I'm about to tell you is true. In Scripture, the word "yom" can be used in one of two ways. It can be used to refer to a literal 24-hour day, or it can be used to refer to an extended period of time. So, for example, when we talk about the day of the Lord, that is rarely ever a day. That is actually an epoch in history. That's the end of the world. That's a season. It's more than a 24-hour period. In the day-age theory, people would sit down and say, "Look, in Scripture." Uh, the word "yom" is not necessarily only used as a 24-hour period. Therefore, if you make this uh, every time every day is actually an extended season of of history, maybe lasting millions or billions of years, we can make sense of an old Earth, and we can not, we don't have to take this literally. So one small little problem with that, and that would be the text of the Bible. It's almost like way, 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 way back when God's like, "Hey Moses." In 3,500 years after you pen this, there's going to be a whole bunch of people and they're going to come up with an alternate solution to this. So we're going to put in some slippery little words that make it really, really clear what I'm talking about. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In fact, there's never an instance in Scripture where these kind of words are used and it doesn't mean exactly what he's saying. Now, I don't mean to be so trite with it, but I do look at this and I'm like, the day-age theory kind of has some significant issues mainly in this fact that it's not consistent with scripture, okay? Uh, Also, what we seem to understand is that Moses didn't believe this, and, and we'll keep going to figure that out. Number three is called the poetic genre theory. It goes like this. Genesis 1 is not history, but poetry, uh, and because it's poetry, they use rhetorical devices, allegory, metaphor, the word yom, and that in fact, most of Genesis 1, maybe even 2 or 3 at times, you have to take them literally. The Bible never intended that. They're more narratives to teach you a lesson and facts about God. Uh, the poetic genre person sometimes we will just say Genesis 1 is poetry, but Genesis 2 and 3 or 4 are history. Benefit of the doubt on that one. Uh, here's the Achilles heel of the uh, poetic genre. Um, Moses rearticulates the creation narrative in Exodus 20, and he doesn't do it as poetry. Moses actually takes Genesis 1, re-articulates a portion of it, and he does it as pure history. Re- read this right here. Genesis chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. Uh, he says this, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and you shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Now, here's my issue. Okay, maybe you can find one aspect of Hebrew poetry in Genesis chapter one, and that would be the use of repetition. That's about it. Uh, Beyond that, It just seems to be a really well-articulated history that is very beautifully written. But let's say it is poetry. And let's say that poetry does use rhetorical devices like allegory and metaphor. Moses re-articulates the story, and he re-articulates it as historical fact. If you were to sit down with Moses, here's what he would tell you. Moses, how how did God create the world? Six days, rested on the seventh? It's not... Poetry? I mean, I wrote it kind of in a beautiful language in Genesis 1, but in Exodus 20, I rearticulated his history because that's what it is. That's how we did it. And Jesus is constantly reaffirming Moses' view of creation, of Adam and Eve, of all this stuff. I mean, Jesus is like, yeah, guys, Moses is correct. What Moses wrote is right. Moses' view of creation is right. And then Paul and the other New Testament epistles keep looking back and they keep saying, no, no, creation was an actual historical event. All throughout the Bible, actually, is a closed system, it affirms that this is not some poetical, metaphorical, allegorical thing. Actually, the closed system of Scripture self-perceives this as history. And even if Genesis 1 does have a little poetic flair, it doesn't mean that it's allegorical or metaphorical. Number four, theistic evolution. Uh, They believe the findings of evolution are true, but they believe it's plausible because you have God who is working throughout history. I appreciate that those who believe in theistic evolution um, want to give God all the capacity and glory, etc. You'll notice I didn't write anything on here except for that, and speaking of the Achilles heel, because there's not much to write. Because nowhere in scripture is there any point of reference for this to even be plausibly true. Uh, I I can guarantee you this, if you sat down with Moses and Jesus and you said, did God use evolution to create the world, they would both look at you and say, (laughs) no, we've never heard of it. (laughs) It's not even in their categories. It's not even in their framework. Um, And so I do appreciate, I don't think people who believe in theistic evolution are dumb or whatever. I don't happen to agree with them because I have to start theologically and biblically and the word of God gives me zero, I mean zero permission to even go there. Here's number five. Literal seven 24-hour days. Basically, you know this, God did it as the Bible records it. The Achilles heel, it's very simple. Contemporary science has concluded the earth is flat. No, I'm sorry, the earth is very old. That was a joke, by the way. Did you catch that? It's going to sink in in a moment. Contemporary science has concluded that the earth is very old. And so what you feel like is this as a Christian. If I believe this, then I must reject the scientific data points. And what you feel culturally is, if I believe this, then I must reject the narrative. I'd like to actually reframe it for you. I believe you have to reject the cultural narrative of evolution because it is illogical. Um, But you do not have to be anti-science and reject the data points. You can actually be very pro-science and tell a very different story, especially if you start with this assumption. I believe in a sovereign, intentional creator God who can do anything. When you start with that, you don't have a lot, you don't even have to get into deep scientific arguments with a ton of people. Either way, you're not equipped, nor am I to do it anyways. So I wanna answer three questions for you. Open up your notes if you haven't opened up already. Number one, why just one week? I mean, really, God, like, why couldn't you have done it over millions or billions of years? And sometimes, Bill's Church, I think we look at God in creation sort of like this. Um, he's just kind of random. Like, he's just like, ah, light, um, people, animals, right? It just kind of happened. Maybe I can give you a different, like, perspective on how God might have done this. Um, any of you know any good computer programmers? We've got a few in this room. Actually, most of them, I think, went to the 9 a.m. service. What does that say about computer programmers? Um Here's what I know, when a computer programmer builds a program, they have to pay attention to every single nuance, why? Because if you don't do it perfectly, it will not function. Everything for a programmer hinges on the details. Sometimes computer programmers put little secrets in the game, little back doors, little hints, little fun stuff like that, you know that, right? But computer programmers are incredibly detailed And there is no part of any game or or virtual interface that you interact with that was not intentionally, meticulously designed. From the software, and then you get to the hardware side, the two of these have to function together in a perfect, perfect, optimal way for it to actually function. And I think we need to take this, put it on steroids, and understand this, that every aspect of creation, every aspect of our planet, every ecosystem, every biological system hinges on meticulous, and intentional perfection, everything, even the amount of time he took to make the days. God does nothing arbitrary or random ever. And just because you do some things randomly and arbitrarily doesn't mean God does. You gotta get out of your brain, like, what do I believe? And you gotta ask a different question, which is, what was God up to? Why did God reveal that he did it this way. Uh, here's an interesting thing about the week. Did you know that in astronomy, if you look at the stars, you look at the cycles of the universe, nobody from looking at the stars would ever come to the conclusion of having a week. Did you know that? The week is only God's invention. You can find months, you can find years, find a whole bunch of stuff in the star, the cycles of this world, right? You will never find a week. And it's interesting because the reason we have a week is because God revealed this in scripture, Now, what's interesting is the Romans, they had an eight-day week. Different civilizations had different, we'll say, calendar rhythms that they functioned by. But the week was God's gift to humanity. Um, God created everything to function on a cycle, and when God made the world, He created us to function on a six-day work week, one-day rest cycle. This is the rhythm that He's infused into it. And every culture and nation that rejects this rejects optimal human flourishing. That one of the greatest gifts God has given to those who follow Him is they follow even ridiculous rhythms that He puts into the world, like six days of rest and one day of, or six days of work and one day rest, and in this process we actually flourish and come alive as as humans. Do you know what the Romans did on their eighth day of the week? They shopped and shopped and shopped. It was a day set aside to go to the markets and spend as much money as you possibly could. I bet some of you wish we had an eight-day week (laughs) just set aside for for that. The week is, is created, established, it is done this way to explicitly inject into creation a gift, a gift for human flourishing. He didn't do this as a metaphor. He did it literally to make sure you knew, first of all, he could. And then we follow his example with our every week. And this is the rhythm that he's made for optimal human flourishing. Somebody might say, but but God could have done it in a different way. Absolutely. God could have used evolution if he really wanted to. God could have done a million different things. And I think the Christian steps back and says, you're absolutely right. God could have done that. But he didn't. He actually tells us, I did something different. And if we say, science, 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 science. Again, my issue is not with science. It's with the story we tell through science. And I have no issues looking at God and saying, uh, you know what, you absolutely, 100% could have done it this way. Now question number two I wanna answer. Why these things? First, I want to look at the format of the days of creation just to kind of set some context up. Um, The days of creation are set up into two categories. You have days one through three, which are forming, days four through six, which are filling. And what you're going to find is that day one will correspond to day four. Day two will correspond to day five. Day three will correspond to day six. This is on purpose. And so we find that in day one, he creates light. And then on day four, lights in the expanse, that would be sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he creates an expanse expanse here. This is the area between, we'll say the waters, and then we find that the waters are swarming and the birds are flying. Day four, he creates dry land. Day six, living creatures who fill the dry land. And this is the way, the general method that God has put together to really organize how he did creation. Now, some of you at this point, here's what you're saying. Michael, there's a glaring logical inconsistency to what you just read. Um, Michael, um, how is there light on day one? when the sun and the moon and the stars aren't made until day four? I mean, do you not see that that doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever? Well, of course, God is always up to something bigger than this, isn't he? Here's what's interesting. I want to read you two passages of Scripture, and I want to help you understand this. Here's the first one. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15 and 16. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Here's what you need to understand about the nature of God is that wherever God is, light emanates. Light is one of the most mysterious forces on the planet. Um, Is it a wave or is it a particle? What is a photon? I mean, uh, it's incredibly complex. And so here's what we find, that wherever God is, the glory of the Lord is so powerful that light emanates from him. And we find in the first three days of creation is very simply this, that God himself, who is light, is forming and the glory of God is emerging out of him. But here's what's really interesting. Did you know the Bible ends exactly the way it begins? It ends without sun and moon and stars, and it ends with the light of God being the only light on the earth, magnifying visibility for all of creation. Listen to what Revelation 22.5 says. Talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no more, there will be, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever and ever. Let me, let me tell you, I'm gonna hypothesize, just take this for what it is. Um, why God made the sun and the moon and the stars on day four. Because no living being could live under the weight of the unapproachable, obliterating Light of God Himself. That one of the most gracious gifts that He gives creation is He restrains His glory and actually gives us something that will not crush us. And this becomes the very foundation of it. And it's interesting that this is not some like thing that went by Moses, I don't know, God, how did you do that? Moses had no reason to doubt God. By the time we get to the end of the New Testament, the very last verses of the Bible, here's what we see the sun, it was created to burn out, it was never intended to be eternal. It was created temporarily, just like most of what we see out in the heavens. The stars are created to burn out. The moon, it's a temporary gift. And one day, when we are given glorified bodies, which Adam and Eve did not have, when we're given glorified bodies, we will not be crushed under the unapproachable light of the glory of God and obliterated. And God Himself will be our light. Incredible. Let's look at the substance. Why did God create these things? We have. Light expands dry land, light swarms living creatures, birds. Go to the next slide. Well, I want to just make it very simple. Every nuance of creation was designed for you. Everything. Angels. I don't know if you know this. Um, Jesus made angels. Angels have two purposes to worship and bring glory to God, serve Him, and to serve you. Ministering spirits to humanity and to worship God. Two, two roles. Everything that God makes ultimately is for you. The earth is created as your home for you to image God. Animals created for you to rule over them, to serve you, and to assist you. Plants given to give you sustenance and oxygen and potential technologies which have emerged from them. So many amazing things all bound up into the very essence of creation. These things, they do not exist for themselves. I want to give you an understanding of how this might work. If you're building a home, you put the foundation down, you build some frame, you put some drywall on it, maybe some electrical if you don't live in the jungle, right? Um, and then you do, you put all these, you put the furniture in the house, you paint all the walls, you put insulate, whatever, you know, all the stuff that you do and you build a house. And a builder, you could look at a builder and say, why did you make this home? How did you make this home? And they can tell you how we made them. But if no family ever moves in, who cares whether or not the studs are gonna hold up the house? Who cares what color the wall is? Who cares whether the couch looks good and fits in the room? The whole point of every part of creating a home is that you're building a house for a family to move into and to build culture and to do things in. That every part of the home never finds its actual fulfillment and purpose until the family moves in it's the same with creation. Every aspect of creation shows the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the creativity, the sovereignty of our God. But it's not until people move in do they find their ultimate and pinnacle purpose. Look, as a dude, I could live anywhere, right? Like, guys, I mean, I could eat ramen noodles. I could sleep in a sleeping bag. Like, I'm pretty low maintenance, you know? Like, and uh, we find this a lot of times. Like, a guy meets a girl, and she domesticates him, right? But there's something bigger going on here. What's actually happening here is that once you get married, maybe you have kids, um, God has created us to not just be by myself, but to build cultures. And when you're married, he creates you to build a family. And so here's what happens. You start to realize that my home, my furniture, what's on the walls, our rhythms, where we put our TV, what time we go to bed, all of it, it's creating culture. It's creating culture. And this is the point of a home. The point of the home is not the structure, but the structure serves our purposes. Here's what I want to create. I want to create little image bearers of Michael and Brianne all over the world that share our vision and values for the universe, right? Oh, come on, you do too. Not me, but you, right? And hopefully, no, hopefully they look more like Jesus than they do us, but that's the point. The home exists for the people. We just got a dog. I think I like the dog. Eh, It's growing on me. Eh. All right, I like the dog a little bit.